Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. If you haven't had a chance to do so, please, please, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a supporter of the show. It is always appreciated. And in fact, it's necessary in order to keep it on the air. So please, again, partner with me to keep it going. As people know who listen to this every week, I do pay for this out of pocket still. And I really want to be able to continue providing this for people as a public service. But I do need some help. So please, if you enjoy it, if you get something out of it, go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and help us out and keep us afloat. And it's so much appreciated. I say thank you on behalf of myself and my team and all the listeners. And now we have part two of my very powerful conversation with Stacey Stukin and Philip D. Slip about 3HO. Philip D. Slip is a PhD candidate in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and holds an MA from the University of Iowa. He has written articles for several academic journals, including Asia and the Journal of Yoga Studies, and pieces for numerous popular venues, such as Yoga Journal and Tricycle. Philip was a member of 3HO for about a decade, after taking a kundalini yoga class at his undergraduate college in the mid-1990s. He left in 2008 and went on to conduct research into the origins of Yogi Bhajan's kundalini yoga that culminated in the groundbreaking 2012 article from Maharaj to Mahantantric for Sikh formations. And we also have Stacy Stukin. Stacy Stukin is an arts and cultural journalist who grew up in Los Angeles. She was a contributing editor of Yoga Journal, and she's also written about yoga for the Los Angeles Times and Time Magazine. Over the years, she's had the opportunity to write about and practice many different forms of the practice, including Kundalini Yoga as taught by Yogi Bhajan. This past July, she wrote a comprehensive investigative piece for Los Angeles Magazine about the current sexual misconduct allegations against Yogi Bhajan and the subsequent reckoning within the 3HO community. I'm very happy to have you here. The second part of my conversation with Stacy and Philip. Here they are now. I think, you know, in so many of these situations, you have someone who is a spiritual leader who you have the sense of kind of gifting you with something. In fact, mm, they are really not gifting you with anything, but instead they are a lesson in thievery. They are stealing. They're taking things away from you that you could be having, like the connections to other people or the sense that you're even connected to yourself, that you can trust your instincts and all of it, things that should never be taken away from you that, of course, you didn't sign up for by getting involved in these kinds of groups. It also, to me, feels like such a deflection because when you're dealing with these kinds of narcissists, they're kind of transmitting their neuroses and their issues onto you. It would be a healthy group if the people in charge were healthy. But, you know, usually people who are manipulators will make other people feel that they're the ones doing things that are wrong. And so when someone is guiding you and telling you what's right and what's wrong, then you think that they must have insight about that and they must have awareness And they must also care enough about it to follow a good code about that, a code of ethics. And so I think ultimately 
what's true about a lot of these people who are in charge of these groups is that they want to continue being able to be your teacher. But I think in order to maintain that, because they are so needy, they need for you to only be attached to them. Your other attachments ultimately are very threatening to people who want to control you. And they want to be given permission to do whatever they want with you. So I think they don't want people to jump in in the middle and say, hey, not so fast. This is wrong. And it's so much easier when you can get people unattached. When Stacy talked about this detachment parenting also, I think this is very, very powerful. I just want to also go back for a second, kind of go back in time. When I was first doing this work, I remember being in uh, this cult clinic in Los Angeles and having someone come to talk to me about how she had studied with, I think her name was Kiran Kalsa, somebody who she really felt was a good teacher for her. And at the time, there was something off about the organization, turned out to be 3HO. And she could sense that she wasn't being given all of the information. She wanted to do a deep dive into the organization, but there was something kind of off. And so she felt like she had been put into kind of this state of spiritual suspension. She knew something was wrong. She couldn't put her finger on it. No one was speaking about what was wrong. No one was willing to answer her questions or her concerns. She also was noticing that there were people who were elevated into positions of authority, given titles, and she just didn't know, she didn't feel about them either that they were spiritual or again, something was off. It was very disorienting to her. And it is sometimes for a lot of people in these groups where something is happening and they can kind of tell. And for a, a, a lot of women, when they notice that they get involved in a, in a group where women are elevated to certain positions, then you think that the person in charge thinks women are equals or women are wonderful. Very much like going back to Ranieri, who, you know, I think is important to reference here again, that the whole group was based on women's empowerment. And that's a phrase that was tossed around from the start. So when I was first doing this work, I got involved because I had a family member who had gotten involved in a cult. And we noticed the distrust that she had suddenly of us, her family, when family relationships had been good and suddenly there was a new family and suddenly her bank account was empty. And she had been a strong girl, strong teenager, actually, at the time soon to be a strong woman. And at first we thought, well, she has a good head on her shoulders, so maybe this isn't such a bad group. You know, what we had here was we had a situation where things were reframed. And suddenly she was talking about the family being people who she couldn't trust. And she was talking about the group being the only people she could trust. And we hadn't heard that kind of very black and white way of looking at things. And she also said that the reason she was so into getting involved in this group was that her friend, who was the one who had introduced her to the group, was now getting along so much better with her parents than she had ever gotten along with them before. And still, we were noticing some very disturbing things. So my parents at the time, because I was still young and living at home, decided to call her folks. And my sibling was open to that because she didn't know that what her friend was saying might not be real, but here she was expecting that when my parents called her friend's parents, they would be told, yes, this is actually really wonderful. Our daughter's getting along so much better with us. And yes, this group is terrific. And instead, her parents said, where did you see our daughter? It was, uh, it was a chilling moment, you know? This was defined by the group as getting along better with your parents. She had left home. 
and was living with other members of the group. And the parents didn't know where she was. They had actually filed a missing persons report. So to have that be that that's good, to be detached, to be unattached is considered to have, those are the healthy relationships, you know, in a, in a cult, the detachment. It's so disturbing. And so I think what was really hard in that moment, too, was sudden, suddenly seeing my sibling notice all of that and everything came kind of crashing down. And what was hard also at the time was that we didn't have help. There weren't resources out there. There weren't people to talk to. I mean, this was the 80s. So where did you go? There was no Internet. And so we couldn't find a therapist to help us. And so once I started learning to become a therapist, I thought, I think I need to learn about this. I think I need to be able to be a resource for people who are dealing with this kind of issue. And it was hard. I needed to do a kind of a collection, go to the library and check card catalogs. That really dates me. Um, and get the information myself in order to learn, again, how to do this work. But I think it's really important that people like both of you are involved in educating people about this, where you are saying here, here's really important and clarifying information. This kind of information has been kept quiet for too long, especially information coming out of this group. It hasn't been available to the public in as generous a way as it should be. There just isn't enough out there. No, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I will say that there's a lot that we haven't even covered <laughs> in our work. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot will continue to be revealed. And I'd also like to point out that in this particular situation, it's it's interesting and a little different because there's the yoga part of it, which is a whole business and a whole other community of people students and teachers who are not like, I don't know how to characterize it, fully immersed in the community. They may not have taken Amrit, changed their name, but they're devoted. How would you characterize them, Philip? What would you call? How would you make that distinction? I, I think I think it's that's one of the many things that that makes 3HO uniquely difficult to describe and talk about. It's so multifaceted. So it comes out of the style of yoga. It creates these businesses. It sort of, it claims these ties to the Sikh tradition. And people can be within all of these aspects. You know, you have people who are kind of at the very core who they do the yoga, they became Sikhs, they work for the businesses, their spouse, that marriage was arranged by Yogi Bhajan, their kids go to the boarding school. But then you have other people who maybe they just do the yoga and teach the yoga. Maybe they're, uh, they're just working for the businesses. Um, maybe they're sort, of, they're sort of into the Sikhism, but they're not into other things. So it's, it's not like a single mailing list where you can say there are exactly this many members. It's a spectrum and it's a, it's a variety. And I think it's one of the things that Stacey and I have seen over the past year is you have people who are mostly involved in the yoga who many of them started well after Yogi Bhajan had died and suddenly they're inheritors of this abuse and this system and I think that's a another type of victim who is trying to untangle all of this what does it mean that my spiritual practice is coming from this kind of abuser what is my relationship now to this organization? Because in right. many months after his death, Yogi Bhajan was freed up to be more of just kind of an ideal type, you know, a, a pretty picture in a frame and a one-a-day inspirational quote wall calendar. Yeah, when you there's like this kind of negotiation going on right now and how to deal with it. So Yoga West, which is the flagship studio here in Los Angeles on Robertson, which is where when he was alive and still teaching, he taught. 
So when this all started coming out, they took all his pictures down. So it became like, okay, well, we can do the yoga without his picture. You know, love the teachings, not the teacher. But then you go to the SSC Corp, Siri Sings Up Corporation website, which is the umbrella organization that incorporates all these businesses. First thing you see is a big picture of Yogi Bhajan. So it's kind of this push and pull that is still going on right now as they try and figure out how to navigate the revelations that came out from an olive branch report. They said that last time I had contact with them, they said they had created a a group or a task force or some kind of response team to look at the second generation abuses. They did offer a stipend for therapy for whoever wants it. But simultaneously, they've also started some process of restorative justice, whereby they hired yet another consultancy to advise them how to go forward. But in the meantime, they're still doing teachers' trainings, you know, promoting the legacy through the yoga. I've called the process that we see 3HO going through and other groups have gone through as harm calculus, where members and organizations themselves, they try and they try and calculate what was good, what was bad, what can we get rid of, what can we emphasize, and in a very real and crude sense, balance out the abuse. And you see this in the actions of the larger organizations and with individual practitioners and teachers. The abuse was bad. I stand with the victims, but the yoga is really good. I feel so bad and I feel so terrible, but that doesn't mean we should get rid of the, the teacher training program. You don't want to say it's crisis management, but it, it is a form of crisis management. Um, right. you see with many of the organizations, there's a sudden push on alleged scientific uh, legitimacy. You know, you now have this flood of mm-hmm. Kundalini Yoga is good uh, studies. When you actually read the studies, it's not really that clear that it is. Uh, you have this woke washing. Let's put our Kundalini Yoga teachers and students of color at the front of every website and talk about how we're inclusive, despite a history that is the exact opposite. All of these attempts to keep the ship afloat. The act of trying to do that itself, you know, separate the baby from the bathwater to partition off what was harmful and what wasn't. This was in the past. These were the few bad actors. And it's incredibly demeaning to what actually happened. I mean, just the fact that there are dozens and dozens of victims out there who are doubtlessly hurt by seeing him and his fabricated style of yoga praised in public. That should give any sensible person pause. Right. I mean, I think it's an important and pivotal point when people are trying to salvage what they can. Should we keep this ship afloat or do we need to kind of take it apart? Do we need to build something new or should we just patch up the holes? And because I think when what you're saying is we're just not going to talk about it, it's also saying it doesn't matter to a certain degree. and. You want to know that your suffering mattered on any level. It's worth emphasizing when Stacey said, we have this report and you know, these actions that came out of the report, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, as horrific as the abuses detailed in the report by an olive branch were, doesn't really mention the abuse of second generation uh, in boarding schools and um, domestically. It doesn't mention... Um, financial crimes and misconduct, Mm -hmm. various other forms of abuse. There is a whole host of um, abuse and sexual misconduct that were done by Yogi Bhajan's senior teachers. I mean, it's hard to think of any region of the country or in the world where you have a prominent Kundalini Yoga teacher where you don't have a parallel, smaller history of abuse. So, I mean... Before we talk about the actions, I think that 3HO is trying to do to remedy, I think it's important to say, like, you know, if a basketball game was going on for five minutes, would you blow the whistle and say, okay, game over, they won, clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's what a lot of these actions are doing. Like, only a little bit has come out. 
So to make definitive statements, I mean, to, to have the audacity to talk about, you know, well, now we're in the healing process. Now we're rebuilding. Like you just remodeled like a corner of the kitchen. What are we, what are we talking mm -hmm. about? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think it's a much bigger process. It's a much bigger problem and it's much more systemic. And I think that's an appropriate context to see the actions that are happening now in. That said, there are teachers that are saying, I'm not going to use his name. And I'm still going to teach there. There's this, you know, we're going to do these listening tours. I, I mean, I haven't been privy to these calls, but there's been a lot of calls where people are sharing their experiences and how, how they feel like they can move forward. And there's also a lot of conflict in that too, because there's people who are saying, everything's fine. We're going to keep, you know, in Española in the, where the, the group is based, they're just carrying on business as usual. Right. And then there's another group of that same generation who are like, no, we really need to look at this. Let's figure out how to make this work. Let's heal. Let's have a healing. But, you know, when you talk to second gen, they're like, you built this. What are you going to heal? And also when you talk to second gen about the yoga, that makes them really mad too, because they say, well, you need to be a responsible consumer. You, you need to know what this the origin of this yoga and, you know, the abuse that it perpetrated on people. One said to me in one of my interviews, you know, people say to me, oh, you grew up in 3HO, Kundalini Yoga, it saved my life. It's amazing. And she said, you know, it's like sticking a knife in my heart. You know, for them, it was punishment sometimes, you know, talking about, you know, moving forward and repairing as Philip said, a lot of people feel like you've got to actually, well, you can speak for yourself. <laughs> well, well, I, Go ahead, Philip. What do you say? Well, I think, um, I think as, as far as the yoga goes, I think we know pretty conclusively that Yogi Bhajan was picking and choosing from different styles of yoga and smushing them together. And in 1968, it was pedal to the metal. He was having his students do very strenuous yoga that would get them really high. You know, if you do an exercise for 11 or 15 minutes, you're going to feel very different. You're going to feel very euphoric. People who do CrossFit or who go running will, will have similar experiences. So it's not this fully formed ancient science that he is just bringing forward. It's a lot. A lot of it is his own inven invention. So however much research you're doing after the fact, however much you like prize personal experience, it's a construction. I think you have to be very careful making these definitive claims that it is a science, it's a technology. But also when you get into it, with the abuse in mind, it becomes clear that a lot of his alleged teachings are, they're directly facilitating abuse, not just I'll get people high on yoga and then this will happen. You know, I think one big example is his teaching about uh, conception and pregnancy. He says, you know, the soul enters the womb on the 120th day after conception. There is no parallel to this anywhere. He claimed, well, this is like an ancient Punjabi folk custom. This is a tradition. All my Punjabi friends say we would be mortified if we had a public ceremony that was like pointing to the specific date that a couple was having sexual intercourse. Are you kidding me? It makes no sense. And it's become part of this routinized, established 3HO body of teachings. I know women who've had their 120th day ceremony. When you read Pamela's memoir, when you listen to the testimony of other survivors, you, like some of the earliest rumors about Yogi Bhajan, who's constantly getting female students pregnant. So then suddenly there's a very different rationale for why he would be speaking from the dais about how you don't have to worry about abortion before the fourth month. It's no big deal, no harm, which is against, you know, some interpretations of Sikh teaching. So I think that should give serious pause of how intertwined are these things? Can you really separate, separate out the teacher from the teachings? And at what point do you have to do so much picking and choosing and weeding out the abuse and the figure of Yogi Bhajan that you end up doing what he did, which is you're coming up with a you know, concoction of his concoction of other forms of yoga. Right. Okay. I mean, it's very muddy, very muddy. 
And it's hard then to know. I mean, if I were to get involved in something, I would want to know that I'm being taught something that is not just one person's interpretation. And to have it be presented like, well, this came from other sources when it really didn't. And there are a lot of people who just will not research that. They won't look into it. We trust the people who we're talking to, the people who are our teachers. We trust the people we see around us who are in our new community. And so sometimes what we need to do is take different things out of a belief system and put them back together once we realize people are being harmed. Some things just need to kind of fall away and some things need to remain and kind of be reformatted. And sometimes also with some groups, you just need to start again from scratch, sort of like the Phoenix idea. I mean, I can't, I can't speak for, for people in that way. You know, I think there are people that find benefit from the yoga, from the music, from I think everybody has to individually figure it out. I mean, as an as an organization, I think that they need that there's some things that need to be looked at. I, I think, you know, I think he was a former guest of yours, Rachel, Matthew Remsky. I think he makes a great point. Who leads reform? Mm-hmm. Is it the organization? Is it survivors? And I think in 2020, what's really interesting is reform and change can happen institutionally and it can also happen kind of from the bottom up and i think that's one of the things we saw in 2020 was people connecting on social media were able to force certain issues to the forefront or things just kind of happened as a matter of course people read the memoir people listened to the testimony of other survivors and just from that alone various studios started taking down his picture rebranding I think there are many ways that it could happen. And I think probably the safest bet is there's not just going to be one uniform thing. You're probably going to have factions and splits and different people moving in different directions. And you also have to realize that this is a global practice. I mean, it's in Russia, it's in South America, it's in Mexico, it's in Europe. So there's all these different communities trying to figure out how to make this work. I mean, obviously they're all under the umbrella. The structure of the organization is very convoluted. But one of the other things is, I mean, and I'm going to kind of do a non sequitur here, but, you know, when I originally pitched this story, my editor said to me, this guy died in 2004. Why are we doing this now? And why is this just coming out? And I explained why saying, you know, that this is, you know, a very popular form of yoga. This organization has a lot of business ties, communities all over the world, et cetera, et cetera. But when I interviewed Philip for the piece, which is how we met, I said to him, how how did this happen? How did they this go under the radar for so long? And I think this is a really important point. He said they were viewed as, you know, their form of Sikhi. Their values were very aligned with American values. It was family. It was, you know, being good, doing good, being involved in your community. You know, these ashrams in many places were involved in their community. They did work hard. They had businesses. They were entrepreneurs. Many of those businesses that were handed over to the organization but that was also why for so many years and, and even still that they can continue to exist without a lot of scrutiny. You know, one of the things when I teach courses on American religion, that's one of the things that's always worth emphasizing is religion has such a prized and privileged position in American society. And from a very material standpoint, you don't pay taxes, but also you are viewed at in so much of a better light if you can say, we are a religion. We are part of a larger religious faith. I think a point that addresses things that both you, Rachel, and you, Stacey, have mentioned previously, um, in a very crude way, um, money talks and bullshit walks. 3HO and Yogi Bhajan said a lot of things. And I think Yogi Bhajan, but more importantly, his representatives and his students were very good at 
portraying themselves in a good light to the press and to the public at large from the very beginning, from 69 onwards. We're not a cult, we're a religion. We don't believe in drugs. We believe in hard work. We believe in marriage and the family. We believe in a cozy home. But then you have to look at what was actually happening. And I think many of the members don't know what was happening behind closed doors. And it's it's like you're through the looking glass, like what they are saying is the exact opposite of what Yogi Bhajan is doing. I recently read a 3HO periodical from the late 1970s, and you have a student of Yogi Bhajan pointing a finger at Punjabi Sikhs and saying that they are they are failures, they are traitors, and American society is corrupt. And America is just full of materialism and sexual perversion and like broken families. And when you know what's actually happening with Yogi Bhajan behind closed doors, you realize that he is doing everything that's being projected onto all in American society and these mm-hmm. like traitor Punjabi Sikhs. It's, it's astonishing, which ties into women in 3HO. Uh, you know, are you going to yeah. pay attention to PR releases or what's really going on behind the surface? There's really basic and helpful things that people do, but there's also the context that it's put in. So when Doris Duke had this bogus yoga teacher back in the early 50s, he told her pretty basic advice. You should eat better. Don't stay out so late. Don't go out so much. And she looked better. She was feeling better. But it was wrapped up in this package. Um, I think that might be, you know, a, a healthy thing to do is to realize that for many people, what they're doing at the core when they're on their spiritual journey or within this group is they've got um, a core of people that they're checking in with. They're doing some exercise. They're doing some meditation. They're building bonds of friendship. Maybe they're, they're eating a little bit better. And I think it's important to recognize that that's the engine that's probably driving a lot of their well-being and growth, not the blessing of a teacher, not some esoteric system, but just the basic things that they're doing, the communities that they're forming. I love that. I mean, I think it's very important. It's also very empowering that you don't need this person from on high to reap the benefits and that you can actually be someone who can provide that for yourself in different contexts. I like that message a lot. Stacey, I'm wondering also from your perspective, when you think about the people who have come forward, many people don't, I mean, most leaders because of groups like this, get away with it and get away with it forever. And so what happened here and what was provided and what did you do to provide for people this ability to help them feel safe in sharing their story? What was different about this situation? Because it's all too rare that these things, well, that this kind of information is revealed and people feel brave enough to come forward. Well, I think there were a few things going on. I think people were ready. I think that there was a lot a lot of some of the things we talked about before. I think the memoir gave people permission. There was also a lot of negotiation and trust building on my part. When you're interviewing um, abuse survivors, you have to realize that you don't want to exploit them. Um, you don't want to exploit their pain. You need to handle the material carefully. You need to check in with them before you use it. You need to listen. You also have to realize as they're telling you their story, they're reliving their story. Very traumatic for them. And and for me, it was very emotional, right? You know, I had a connection to this community really through the yoga, you know, reporting this piece. There were times where I literally physically was so exhausted because I was holding these stories. Some of them I could use, some of them I couldn't. There's a blog that I, if your listeners would like to check out, called Rishi Not. It's a second gen person who started publishing in 2008. She's the holder of a lot of these stories too. She started publishing stories from other people. So, you know, some people feel comfortable using their names, some people don't. One of my most revealing interviews or the one that kind of 
there were many, but it was from a woman who had been in the organization, still is since the 70s, but her coming to grips with that maybe she was in a, or is in a mind control group, you know, giving her the opportunity to tell that story first time publicly, I felt, I felt almost honored that she trusted me to tell that story because I know it caused her a lot of both personal anxiety and within the community she would she was saying something out loud that nobody says she said I I think this is a cult and you know for her that was that was a very difficult thing to admit publicly it's something she had been thinking about for for many years and I think there I think there are there is a group of first gen who have been thinking about these things for five, six, seven, maybe more years. And they've been talking amongst themselves. They've been writing statements, thinking about it. I'm sure I'm not privy to some of these conversations, but I do know that they have been happening. So just to, circle back it's just kind of a slow significant revelation that's happening and a reckoning and I think if you just give people the space to express it without judgment I mean at least that's how I work there was and I never use things without permission just things like that just you build trust, and then I think people, when they're ready, will come to you. And after I wrote my piece, I got emails from from people that I didn't interview. They found me, and they thanked me. But it was a tough piece to write, both just tying all the threads together and also emotionally. Yeah, I think people don't realize, you know, I'm so glad you were talking about, you know, what it's like for you. I know you can handle it, but there are a lot of people who need to be able to kind of compartmentalize, you know, when you're telling that kind of story or writing that kind of story, collecting that sort of data, there's a lot that can be triggering for everyone involved, but it's still important to push forward and make it happen for a lot of these women and also for the men that I think are important to talk about too. We don't want to overlook them, certainly. And this does affect people of every gender. It's also really important for people listening to hear that a lot of people have stories that need to get out there and they're waiting for the first person. They're waiting for someone to start talking. So they don't have to be the only voice. They're afraid of being the only one to stand up in that crowded room and the only one to stand up who has an issue and then feeling even more isolated. So people often wait for someone else to come forward. And that's when you then have other people joining in because they know they're not alone. So if people do want to share their stories, they now have resources. They have both of you. They have others to talk to. And it's important and it can help. And it can help set the ball in motion because it also helps move people towards justice at times and also overall safety. This is sometimes what can happen and, you know, knowing that is important. And this is what you need to watch out for. It's a hard thing to look at. You're being introduced also to certain kind of persona that you don't want to know exists, especially within a religious community, within a spiritual community. I think looking back on the events of this past year regarding 3HO, I think in hindsight, one of the things that was really important was that Stacy's piece for Los Angeles Magazine came out just before the report by an olive branch. And that report had been constantly, the deadline, the release date had constantly been extended. And my own opinion is that the handling of that report ended up being more than a footnote or an asterisk for 3HO because her piece came out just before. And I think it was a powerful reminder that people were paying attention mm-hmm. and that people were would would talk. You know, it points to the important role of 
scholars and historians and journalists to be that party, to be that witness and to be those kind of truth tellers who will witness and who will tell. Well, no, and I was going to say, and then there's the interviews that I had that I wasn't able to include, right? And so then that's, you know, that's always difficult because you want to, you want to give people the voice that they, they deserve. And, and another area that I, and one of those interviews, you know, there is, um, there's a lot of homophobia in that community as well. You know, that's something to point out too, that that didn't really go along with the traditional, the traditional, and I'm using quotes here, the traditional values. Being gay was not part of the program. It was not accepted. It was, people were shamed. And that's, that's a very difficult subject that people need to be made aware of as well. I also think that groups like 3HO, the running joke among the small circle of people who study and, and research and investigate for HO is the numbers were have always been kind of weirdly consistent. Like how many people were in 3HO? About three to 5,000 in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. But I think the health of a lot of 3HO was dependent on people coming in while some people cycled out, at least from the yoga to constantly have a supply of people who would discover the yoga, take teacher training, you know, spend those thousands of dollars, help support local studios. But then there's a lot of people just ignoring, you know, especially if you look on social media, some of the current proponents of Kundalini yoga is taught by Yogi Bhajan, deleting posts by people questioning what they're doing, um, blocking people on social media who question instead of, you know, having a dialogue about, you know, how to move forward or how to handle this or how to reconcile, you know, the teacher and the teachings, it's just cancel. That's another unfortunate symptom of our times in social media because there is this ability for people who want to continue to uphold you know, and revere Yogi Bhajan, they can do that in their own echo chamber without being held accountable. Right, right. I think, you know, you've been so generous with your time and this will be certainly split into two episodes. So people can listen out for not only the episode they just heard, but the one that will be following next week. You know, the passage of time is an interesting thing. When you're holding on to information that will stay with you for a lifetime, you're wondering why it doesn't for other people, why, why they can move on from it and somehow make things okay. And sometimes people just don't avail themselves of information that's out there about the group. And sometimes they're not interested because it interferes with the good parts, the thing they think they're still going to be able to get from it. And they don't want to be kind of encumbered by the kind of messiness of conflicting messages about the group. So there are a lot of times that we, in our fields, we have stories. We hear stories, many more stories that are out there. But here, the leader died. And I wonder if he hadn't, what would have happened? What would have gone down? Would he have repackaged himself? We see that way too often, that leaders just repackage themselves. And, you know, you want to scream from the mountaintops because you know about them and people aren't listening. But, uh, you know, sometimes the law doesn't catch up with them. And sometimes it does. So along the way, there's kind of a letting go, I think, for people like us, where we need to kind of let the process happen, but still do what we can to collect people's information and be able to get it out there. So I want to thank both of you, the truth tellers who are on my show today and who will be on the show next week, who are willing to take that chance and do also what I think feels right. Because I know for both of you, you're in different fields, but there's also what I'm gleaning from both of you that there's, there's a sort of way of being driven to approach this, being able to give people a voice, 
being able to honor their experiences. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to do. And to also warn people about what to watch out for so that they can keep themselves safer. Thank you to both of you for your time. Just before the one more thing before you go, I just wanted to say that if any of you want or need to be in touch with me or want to be able to share anything, any ideas for the Colin show, any advice you want to give the listeners about things that helped you move on from a controlled experience and regain your freedom, anything also that did not help along the way that you want to advise people about that was actually counterproductive. Just let us know. I was realizing that some communication from people is falling through the cracks. And when I did a count today, I found that there are actually 15 ways and counting for people to get in touch with me and leave messages here and there, either written form or in voice form. And that's just way too many places for me to check on a daily basis. So I'm going to condense things and ask that if you want to be in touch, please send me an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com or at BernsteinLMFT, F is in Frank, at gmail.com. And then I'll make sure to check those two spots and that will help expedite communication. Much, much, much appreciated. And now one more thing before you go. I thank Stacy and Philip for speaking with me about their research and about their experiences. And I hope that you got something from the second part of my conversation with them. It was very powerful to hear what they had to say. And also when they talked about people who were born and raised in this group, I was thinking about other people who also have been born and raised in controlling families into situations that were not of their choosing, whether they were family systems or groups, churches, whatever it was, compounds even. And I've worked with a number of people who were born and raised on compounds, and they've really kind of never seen the world outside. They've never been in the store and had to deal with spending money. They've never had to deal with the public. A lot of them have never read the news or had access to the internet. They don't know references to popular culture. There are people who call themselves SGAs, second generation cult members, people who, again, didn't choose this, but were born and raised in a group or came in when they were very young during a time before they had really formed their persona. And so, again, their persona, their sense of self was developed within the cultic group or that system. Now that cults have been around for a long time, they're second, third, fourth, fifth generation former members and counting. And I want to talk a little bit about them today. I know I've talked about them in the past. And uh, during one of my previous episodes, I have a one more thing before you go about a boy who was raised on a compound run by a man named Tony Alamo, who has since passed away. And when I was working with him, he was a teenager who had never interacted with the world. And I went with him to his first day of school in an actual school with other peers, and everything was overwhelming and exciting. But even down to not knowing if it's okay to ask a question. And so I hope that you have a chance to listen to that. We will track down which one that is of the many <laughs> that I've done, and we will try to send a link. But I think it is really important for people to know that there are specific issues that people born and raised in cults deal with, or people, again, who came in at a very young age. First, going back to this boy that I'm thinking of, where he didn't know if it was allowed to ask a question, even though that's sort of the whole point of being in school, because he was never allowed to ask questions before. It was seen as insubordinate and rude and Satan, whatever it was called at the time. And that's just, of course, because the leader doesn't like to be questioned. 
and takes questioning personally because I think they have really uh, mm, delayed maturation. But of course, they would not admit that that's the reason. The other thing that people deal with is trouble making decisions. Because within a cult, you don't make decisions on your own. You have to give that up to the people in charge because you're told that they will make better decisions for you than you will make for yourself. And again, that's usually not the case. And a lot of people give over their decision-making power to people who advise them tremendously poorly. But they still know that that's part of the system and that's the expectation. And that if you make a decision on your own and it doesn't work out, of course, the reason that you'll be given is because you made that decision on your own without conferring with people in the group. And so you're kind of stuck. And so then the unspoken message is you can't trust yourself. Left to your own devices, you would make the wrong decision. And so people come out not having somebody to ask first, not having someone to lean on to make all their decisions. Decisions not only about what you're supposed to do, what decisions you're supposed to be making, who you're supposed to be marrying, what you're supposed to be believing, but even down to how you're supposed to be feeling at any given moment. So the other part that happens to a lot of second generation members who come out is, again, they feel very much out of it. They feel like they were sort of dropped on this planet from another planet. And they are not sure about where they fit in on this planet. They really don't often have a sense of history. They don't know social norms. How much is too little to share? How much is too much to share? Sometimes they will often overshare or completely isolate themselves and be in this kind of extreme way of living, very much like being in a cult, which is all about kind of a black and white world where there is one right way and every other way is wrong. And where you're supposed to keep secrets about a lot of things and with people who you feel comfortable opening up to, a lot of former SGAs, former cult members who were born and raised in these cults say that they overshared, that they shared very personal information very quickly with somebody just because they thought they could trust them or because they were in a position of authority. Or they were in my office sharing with me upon first meeting me, sharing so many things that were so, so personal, which just so you know, I often slow people down from doing and will let them know that part of the reason they are telling me their deepest, darkest everything in the first five minutes is because that's what they've been trained to do. And they think that's going to please me. And I will actually ask them to wait and to ask me questions and to verify that I'm trustworthy and to just share little bits of information first to assess if they should share more with me and sort of how to learn to do that in the world so you don't overexpose yourself too soon. The other part is that with people who were born and raised in cults, unlike people who got involved in them later on, they don't have a life to go back to. They don't have a frame of reference. They often don't have family and friends that they cultivated outside of the group. So they don't know where to go and who to be with and who to go to. And so, again, they feel very isolated. And often they will connect with each other, which is kind of a wonderful thing to see where they, they'll find each other online or through conferences or through my support group or wherever else. But it's very important for second generation, third, fourth, fifth, to know that you are certainly not alone. And there are many of you out there. And it's important for you to find each other if you have nowhere else to go. It's also good to know that if you're experiencing extreme self-doubt and self-blame, that somehow you feel guilty that by leaving you abandoned the cause or you left God or you failed the group or you were weak in some way, that none of that is true. That sometimes the fact that you left is because you were kicked out and you didn't have a choice. 
or the fact that you left is actually a show of strength, not a show of weakness, like you couldn't hack it. Also, people who leave these situations who were born and raised in them have a very hard time putting themselves first or even second. They have a very hard time doing self-care and knowing that it's okay to rest, knowing it's okay to sleep in. Many people who have been born and raised in cults are used to working very quickly and working round the clock and not complaining and just not sleeping very much and not taking care of themselves and not having the fact that they're hungry or tired or sick even register because they were raised in environments where none of that mattered. So they learn to ignore those things, those things inside of themselves that's kind of telling them what they need. And it's important to learn how to listen to those things and to know that they matter and to take time for yourself. And it doesn't mean you're lazy and it doesn't mean you're selfish. It just means that you're being smart, that you're listening to what your body and mind are telling you they need. I think also it's important to know that a lot of people who were born and raised in these groups have had a lifetime of abuse or neglect, physical or emotional or both. And so a lot of them leave with post-traumatic stress and also sometimes suicidal ideation because they don't know, again, if they fit in in the world. And they're not sure how to sort of start it as adults in this world. Where do you begin? How do you begin learning what you need in order to live in the world as though you're a child? And who do you ask? And how do you get over your worry about asking questions, asking for advice about things that you, quote unquote, should know about already? And I think it's also good to know that in many cultic groups, women are treated as really subordinates and learn to be submissive, learn that they don't have a voice and they don't have rights and they can't set for a second and they can't set boundaries of any sort and so women i think need a lot of support to learn what their rights are and even that there are these things called rights it's also good to know that children raised in these kinds of communities are often not treated as children they're treated like small adults very much like Some of the older paintings you see from previous centuries where children sort of look like adults, but in smaller form. And so they haven't had a chance to go through the developmental process of being able to be given tasks that are age appropriate, being able to have fun and enjoy themselves and make mistakes and have it be okay. And they need to be able to know now as an adult that it's okay to make a mistake and it's okay to not know things. It's also good to know that usually people have a very skewed view about dating and sexuality and boundaries in general. And they really need to learn again what the norms are and when it's okay and when it's right to say no. There can be a lack of education very often in cultic groups. And so people really need to catch up and do a lot of educating of themselves to learn things, to learn skills, to learn information, to be able to then live on their own, to find a way to gain enough information so they have marketable skills. Because oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the things that you learn in cults aren't necessarily transferable into the world outside and aren't things that you can use to support yourself. Also within cultic groups, there are usually attachment issues where the cult always comes first and the cult is much more important than your family. And so people leave sometimes really feeling like they have real struggles with attachment, how attached to become to people and how attached to not be to people and what is safe, what's a safe amount of attachment, what's a quote unquote normal amount of attachment and feelings of connection. The other part that I think is really important is that there can be a lot of raging feelings 
inside of people who were born and raised in these groups. And one of the main feelings that I come across with a lot of people is resentment. This, again, changed their lives and their makeup and their ability to feel like a part of the world. And it wasn't something that they did to themselves. It's something that other people did to them. It's a decision that was made for them. And now that they left, they know that they would never have made that decision for themselves. So you might not know that they're having all of these feelings because when people leave these kinds of situations, they learn to appear fine. Most cult members have a very kind of solid, calm, mm, put together outward persona. And it hides so much of the turmoil inside. And so the next time you find that somebody is sharing with you that they were born and raised in a particular group that would be considered a cult, and if you ask them how they're doing and they say, oh, I'm fine, it could be that they are, but chances are they're not. So that's not the time for you to walk away. That's the time for you to look at them and say, I know you're saying you're fine, and I hope you are, but you actually don't have to say that now if it's not true. So let me know how you're really doing, and let me know how I can help. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.